Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. My guests today are a truly dynamic and creative power couple. She is a poet, writer, dancer, and fitness instructor who, by the way, has been offering virtual high-intensity interval training workouts while pregnant, (laughs) as if I didn't feel bad enough about myself before I met you. (laughs) He's a first-generation Haitian-American poet, actor, and singer who was gearing up to star in Hamilton at the Los Angeles Pantages Theater until the pandemic hit. Together, they're expecting baby number one, Leslie and Carvin's Lassant. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having having us. us. Thank you for having us. And your bump. This is the first podcast for your unborn child. Yeah. I assume this is the first. It is. It is. So there's so much to cover. You guys are clearly extremely creative, and I feel lucky to have met you. I didn't get to know you too well yet, but uh, I think that you're both very inspiring, and I love the energy from the two of you, and I can't wait to see what that turns out to be in a child with uh, (laughs) half of your genes and half of your genes. Let's start at the beginning. Where are you guys both from? So I'm Leslie. I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I lived in New York for seven years, and now we're in L.A. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, Carvins. I'm from New York City. Was raised in Upper Manhattan, Harlem, New York area. Lived in Brooklyn for seven years with uh, lovely Leslie here. And yeah, we're new. New to the lost of the Angeluses. Welcome aboard. We're thrilled to have you. I'm a New Yorker myself. Hey, yeah. None of us talk like that, though. I don't know. <laughs> Because <laughs> we're in Los Angeles, got to keep it a little bit under the surface. And first of all, do you know any other Carvinses? Not one. There's one on Facebook, and I think they're spam. But oh, really? I might be the only Carvins. You're there. the only Carvins not in a can. <laughs> <laughs> Where does the name come from? From what I, how I understand it, I think it was a mistake. Oh. Uh, my parents are. I'm first generation American. My f- parents are from Haiti. Um, and I believe my name was supposed to be Kevin, but the name, the way you pronounce Kevin in Haitian Creole is Kevin's. So, um, my father was new to the country. So he went and, and wrote down Kevin's on the, uh, page and it was C-A-R-V-E-N-S, not Kevin, but Carvin. So Carvin's. my name was, was a mistake and I'm happy it was a mistake because I got to make something beautiful out of, uh, <laughs> a tragic mistake yeah well and super unique you know i wasn't sure so i searched the origin of the name and nothing absolutely nothing came up I, now i can add something it was a yeah mistake. that's that's, that's the word according to those naming websites less than a hundred people were named carvins this year really so there you go it's zero <laughs> yeah and then leslie what you know you're just leslie but you make up for it by in so many other creative ways and uh, who knows, maybe there are mistakes <laughs> that you can share also at some point. You both have a background in poetry. Yes. That's how we met. Yeah. How, what do you mean that's how you met? We had mutual friends. I was at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, a part of the, what was it called? First Wave. Well, First Wave program, I was saying that I was part of a poetry slam competition, Cupsy, which is the... It's the Collegiate National Poetry Slam, uh, where... All colleges from all over uh, participate. They all have their own poetry slam teams and they come to one area and they sort of have a festival, a series of workshops, performances, open mics. So And they compete. Yeah. So I was competing with the UW-Madison team. He was a coach for NYU. But we had mutual friends, like knew each other in the poetry world, but never met in person until that day. 
And it was just very mutual. He had a girlfriend at the time. You know, I was about to go abroad, live my best free single life. And we were just, you know, how you doing? Oh, nice to meet you. Like your poem. Yeah, very cordial. Um, Fast forward to like. Well, yeah, for the better half of two years after that, we would connect on and off via Facebook, talk about faith, talk about acting, talk about art, maybe about, uh, we missed each other a whole bunch. Yeah. There were times that she was in New York and was supposed to be at like the same party that I was supposed to be at and we missed each other. Yeah. Or there were times I was supposed to get booked for a gig over in Wisconsin and then that will fall through. So we missed each other for the better half of two years. And- they accidentally hired Kevin for that gift. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah, straight up, straight up. And then, uh, yeah, and then in 2012, we sort of reconnected. She got into this thing theater program called Theater Makers at the Eugene O'Neill Institute, which is Ooh. in Connecticut, uh, right near New York. So He slid in my DMs. Or no, I think it was posted. You're like, yeah, oh, are you I coming to New York before? We should open. hang out. And I was like, yeah, we should. I'm coming to New York before. Yeah, yeah. And then we had like, I think either right before I was coming to New York or like a month before, we ended up reconnecting on Skype. And this is like, we never did a video before, so it was really random. We did video once One time, okay. But it felt random and I was like in pajamas trying to get like cute. And then he was like, let me call you back. My manager called. And I was like, what? <sighs> and my manager did call. <laughs> and then, but he did call me back and then we never stopped talking. Like Aww. for hours. I gotta write that one down, hold on. I gotta go. My manager's calling. <laughs> okay. Sorry, mom. Okay. Wow, there's so many things already, and then there's so many more things. First of all, I'm jealous of both of you because I crave to understand poetry and to get poetry and art in general. I look at art and I just sometimes stare at it for hours and I'm just like, what are people seeing here that I'm not seeing? <laughs> and, you know, I sometimes hear poetry and it sounds beautiful, but sometimes it goes way over my head. So I feel what's that goes way over my head. Okay, good. I don't feel alone now. But I wish like I sometimes I read it to my kids. I'll read books of poetry to my kids just because I don't want them to not get it. (laughs) I'm probably screwing them up even worse, putting the punctuation in all the wrong places. (laughs) But then you said also you connected on faith. Do you share a faith? Yeah. Yeah. We're both we're both Christians. I've heard of that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, at the time I was sort of like very new in the family. I mean, I, I grew up sort of in the Catholic church, but that's very different. That's a whole other story. Mm. But yeah, at the time I was just recently just starting to go to church, investigating the faith for myself, you know, connecting with my own sort of relationship with Jesus. And she, she was doing the same. And yeah, we really connected. On that. that was actually yeah, that, the key. Yeah, I was going to say that first convo, I think it was like the first, within the first five minutes, he asked me, tell me about your relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And I think from there, everything had like a depth of vulnerability, a rawness and honesty, mm-hmm. where we talked about how we struggled in our faith and what sins we were battling and like what relationships looked like in the past without God at the center and like what we imagined it would look like if we had a relationship that was faith centered. We talked a lot about like um, our families and like not seeing a, a relationship with God at the center. So I, I feel like the first conversation was real, real, mm-hmm. real. Like super deep, like I was crying and I was like, oh my God. And then he was like, no, I said at the end of the call, oh, I, you know what we should do? He was like, what, pray? And I was like, yeah. And it was just like, wow. Very, I don't even know, like just divine, I guess. I mean, I'm jealous again. It took me like three or four months 
in my relationship with my now wife to really understand what pizza toppings she likes. (laughs) And at the end, I was just like, let's just order a pizza, baby. It was like a big moment. It was a big moment. That's so special and sweet. Do you guys have siblings? Yeah, I have two sisters, one older, one younger. And yeah, you have. Yeah, I have um, an older brother and I have a younger brother and a younger sister. And do your siblings have kids? Yes. 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 My older sister has four daughters. (laughs) Oh my goodness! Uh, Wow. Where does her husband pee? That's there's no. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's crazy. He he was. uh, Yeah. Yeah. They they were busy. And they all they all same. And then actually, my older brother um, has uh, one son and three girls, and my younger brother has two girls. So there's a lot of there's a lot of women. Oh, so you have like experience. Not really. Okay. Experience with Jason. Yeah, I was gonna say, you know, we lived in New York and we didn't really only like we'll we'll see our family maybe like holidays and stuff like Mm -hmm. that and get to to see how they do their, you know, home and yeah. But your aunties and uncles. Yes. Yes. Your auntie and uncle. All right, you're both super busy with your careers. (laughs) So where do we start? Right. Well, not too busy now because there's, there's, there's this little thing out there called COVID nineteen that kind of stops some things. Say, as, as I've heard, I read about that. Yeah, yeah, you read it? yeah, yeah. He's yeah. all over the place. <laughs> that guy. Well, it's really, it's it's gone viral. Uh, <laughs> That's yeah. I've been saving that for, for one of these episodes. Um, so let's talk about right before the pandemic hit. You guys moved to LA. Moved to LA December. We found out we we're pregnant in January. I had it's just going back. great. Yeah, I just got back from hosting an international women's retreat in Colombia. I was feeling oh, really that good. Yeah, we had just moved. Yeah, I mean, we moved here for for the job for for your job in in Hamilton. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know that that was sort of the blessing that brought us over. But we always talked about living on the West Coast, trying out LA. It was such good timing. I think even in our own marriage for our own mental health to leave sort of the hustle and bustle of New York. So the, yeah, the timing was, was, was prime for, I think for a transition. So it was great. Yeah. So we were really excited just about, you know, transitioning, uh, coming into this market in terms of television and film and, yeah. you know, investigating that and seeing how it would be. And yeah, I was both in like tech rehearsal for the show and, and, Late March, we had just had like our first prenatal visit. Yeah, I just uh, started my uh, screenwriting class here in yeah. LA. I was like very excited. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was sort of pre-COVID. Yeah, just being prepared to see what the year, yeah, what the year was going to bring in this new sort of situation. I definitely was thinking through like baby shower in Minnesota, New York. I definitely was like, you know, baby moon, maybe Hawaii. Like, definitely was like excited, had lots of ideas and plans. Mm-hmm. I don't know how theater works, even though I was a theater major. I don't know how theater works. And was this supposed to be like based in Los Angeles for a long time? Or is it yeah. traveling around? Yeah, no, well, contractually, it was a year and a half. The the, the show was going to sit down for oh, wow. some bit. I think it was like maybe around 16, yeah, 16 17 months. months. Um, so, yeah, and that's, you know, that's not too common, you know, for a show to come and sit down that long in a city like like LA, LA so it's yeah. a super, it was, big. it was definitely a blessing. But. Um, and so had you been in that show someplace else before? Yeah, I was a, I was a part of the show for two years. Uh, I joined the show 
2017 on Broadway as a standby. And then I went on one of the tours as a George Washington and then came back and took over the lead role of George Washington on Broadway. So I was with the show for about two years. Oh, wow. So, and that's what you were going to continue that role here? Yeah, I was going to continue the role of George Washington. Yikes. Okay. So did it just like hit you like a ton of bricks that this is all going to come to a screeching halt or did it kind of hit you in phases? Yeah, yeah. But then at the same time, I, I was also very exhausted. I mean, you know, I had done the show for two years. I left the show in June of 2019 and, you know, sort of gave myself a, somewhat of a sabbatical just so I can give, you know, I was like spending some time working on my mental health, working on my physical health. And I think the time was good. And I had just grinded and worked so hard for the better half of like the 16 years of like my young adult life as a professional artist all the way up until now. But I said, man, like, so I wasn't too like sort of angry that the show stopped. In the beginning. In the beginning. I mean, outside of like the check and I'm like, oh Lord, I, ooh, what am I going to do for money, child? Um, <laughs> there was that. But- you need those George Washingtons. Yeah, exactly. I mean, all the George Washingtons. But, but what was the most sad was the community. That, that's really, you know, mm-hmm. outside of the show was the community, the people, uh, the company. We had an amazing company, man. I, it, was a, it was an all-star cast of different folks from every single Hamilton company. And, you know, I love those folks. So it was the company and the people. I think that that's what hurt the most. I don't know. Because you had a lot of... Leslie had a lot of things. Yeah, I have a one woman show called This Is How We Heal. So I had like a festival here in LA I was going to do. I was going to travel to Wisconsin and perform it. I had a Brazil retreat that I was, you know, planning. Like it was a lot of things that I was like really looking forward to that literally like each week it was an email like, we don't know. And then another week, like we're going to have to cancel the contract. You know, Uh like it was like a slow trickle of like, everyone's like, we got to cancel, we got to cancel. Maybe virtual, we got to cancel, so. Financially, it was a strain. I mean, we were living off the gifts of our church back home. And savings, yeah. Yeah, no, we, that was gone. <laughs> that was gone. Savings are gone. We spent all our savings moving out here. Uh, that's have you, not so important, but. Have you been able to adapt and do things during the pandemic? Um, I know, Leslie, you're doing workouts. Yeah, so I mean, when March hit, you know, also uh, my midwife was like, yeah, you need to stay active. So yeah, I started uh, virtually hosting HIIT workouts three days a week. And that just became word of mouth, like my mom and then a friend, and then it just kind of spread. And I was just donation-based. So I've been doing that since March. By the way, that's the same as my podcast. At first, it was just my mom, and (laughs) now it's my mom and my auntie Jane. So (laughs) they're going to love you guys. That's yeah, awesome. just growing. I mean, I think there's that. And then um, grateful for unemployment and pandemic relief. I'm um, helping like, you know, self-employed gig workers and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm trying to think just pivoting, you know. Um, Are you guys writing? Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's yeah. writing a lot. I think I went more like poetry. I've just been focused on like pregnancy. I think a lot of my writing has been like essay based and really like reflecting what it means to be pregnant during this time or um, things I'm noticing, like what's missing, like what narrative, what stories, what voices are missing in pregnancy that I've been noticing in my own journey. So I think there's been a lot of like journaling and writing of articles and personal reflection. But not, I haven't wrote like a play or script. In the beginning I tried and I think it was just really hard because it didn't matter to me. Hmm. Yeah. Have have you guys written together? 
No, but we definitely collaborated. So with my one woman show, he was very helpful in helping with direction and like helping with rehearsals and script editor. He yeah, was an so, amazing so script, script editor. editor. Yeah, I didn't do all those other things she just mentioned. You did? <laughs> yeah. you? You were helping me with the configuration? We rented a space. Well, I was just reconfiguring what was already configured. Anyways, from you, the last you helped. Time. You helped. Yeah, it was more the writing. I yeah, was, I was there sort of I, as a dramaturg yeah. and did like a, yeah. script editor. Yeah, we did a writers retreat a one weekend, and I finished a whole draft, and he helped a whole. Oh, uh, that's amazing. That was amazing. Uh, well, oh, that signal means it's time for a quick break. <laughs> We're gonna go take a commercial break. We'll be right back with Leslie and Carvin's, not Kevin Lassant. <laughs> I have an incredible offer for you for my friends at Needed. An astounding 95% of women aren't meeting their omega-3 needs. Omega-3 fatty acids, especially DHA and EPA, are crucial for both mother and baby. They support brain and eye health, maternal mood, immunity, and much more. But it can be hard to get enough omega-3 from diet alone, especially during pregnancy when many people are averse to eating fish. And if you've ever taken a fish oil pill, you know just how unpleasant that can be. That's why I'm excited to share that my friends at Needed have revolutionized the omega-3 supplement with two different options designed specifically for mamas. An omega-3 powder that blends into smoothies and a pill option that tastes like fresh citrusy bergamot. Both are sustainably sourced from vegan algae, not fish. Both are great options for nausea and sensitive prone mamas. Needed's Omega-3 powder is delivered in liposomes, nature's very cool way of protecting and delivering Omega-3 just like in breast milk. Needed's Omega-3 is clinically proven to be five times better absorbed than fish oil pills. The powder is mild tasting and it pairs great with Needed's prenatal multi-powder and collagen protein powder in a daily smoothie. If powder isn't your thing, Needed's got you covered with those Omega-3 plus capsules, which have a pleasant citrus flavor. Needed is sharing an awesome pre-order discount just for my listeners. Buy two, get one free on either Omega-3 option, powder or capsules. You can stock up on either one or try them both. With this exclusive discount, use code 3BERLIN, the number 3BERLIN at thisisneeded.com. Put three Omega-3s in your cart, use the code number 3BERLIN at thisisneeded.com. Buy two, get one free. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We are talking to Leslie and Carvin's Lassant. Okay, you guys are pregnant. Was <laughs> it, uh, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, but was this planned for now? Yeah. Yeah, it was planned. It was planned. It was I got a lot of people pregnant right now that were not planned. You're a little further advanced, but they're like earlier in the pregnancy. And apparently they're pandemic babies. I think we're going to call them coronials. <laughs> uh, that's hilarious no we did yeah we planned we we discussed it a lot i mean over the years yeah we've been married for six almost seven years mm-hmm. um and i think throughout our marriage one thing we valued was just having a strong foundation before we had children mm-hmm. and then i think we went through different phases like car was ready and i was like i'm not ready and then i was ready he was like i'm not ready <laughs> so then we finally like you know came to a nice place where we both were like okay we're ready and then well, it was more so the right, the place was, there's no way to actually fully be prepared. We can be as mindful as possible, you know, make sure that we, 
investigate our own traumas before we bring a kid into the world, trying to make sure that we're financially somewhat you know, yeah. stable, although that's not a reality in our <laughs> line of work. Uh, so yeah, we were mindful, but we came to the realization like there'll never be a right time, so why not? And Yeah, and I was gonna say, just to add the realization of like, if we don't plan it, we could totally like get busy with work and it won't happen. Yeah. You know, like time will go by and we're like, Oh, remember that idea about having a baby? You know, so I think it was very much intentional. And like, we both did a lot of outside work. Like a year before I was like, you know, serving my friends who had uh, babies and I joined kids ministry. Like I was really intentional about being around children. Cause like in New York, I'm not seeing any kids. So I think there was a lot of intentionality around wanting to become parents. Yeah. I mean, if it makes you feel any better, my firstborn is 16 years old and I still don't feel ready. So... (laughs) Yeah. But I have been married for 25 years, and I'm starting to get the hang of that. (laughs) I feel good about it. All right. So, but you mentioned trauma healing. Is there specific things that you did to heal from trauma? Was there trauma to heal from? Yeah, I think, like, coming, like, my parents are divorced, not ever seeing what it meant to grow up with a father. So I think going to therapy, my one-woman show uh, talks a lot about healing from family trauma using art and poetry and dance, uh, but wondering about those impacts, right? Like generationally, if you come from families upon families who've never been married or you've never seen a father interact with a child, like how does that, you know, what does that look like? So I think it was that. Do you want to add anything? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was just more so wanting to heal from not really growing up in a house that, felt like there was love in there or my version of it or even God's version <laughs> version of love. You know, I wanted to, you know, do the work in myself, make sure that my house was filled with humility, that my house is filled with reconciliation when there's contention, to make sure that my house is filled with affection. A lot of those things I didn't experience. How do you do that? Yeah. So for me, I mean, it's, it's, it's a couple of things, right? The first one is just, you know, if you're thinking pragmatically, therapy, right? Investigating those sort of parts of my of myself and of my childhood and seeing uh, what am I holding on to, seeing what patterns am I sort of exhibiting right now, even before the kid gets here. That's it. A lot of introspection for me. Uh, I, have ha- I have in the past created a lot of art around it as just the vehicle just to get it out. So I felt like I wasn't fostering anything. Again, faith is big. So it's a, praying a lot about forgiveness, yeah. praying a lot about uh, how to be healthy and whole, even in spite of not coming from maybe a family or a group of people or an environment that exhibited those those types of fruits of the spirit, patience, kindness, forbearance, things that you would like to see. So the work looks like that for And being in community, I think is really big. Like we got married young, you know, what are the examples of, of the family that we want to see if we didn't grow up seeing really great examples. So I think being in community has been really helpful talking to families. We're like, we like the way you parent, you know, tell us more about that. What does that look like? Um, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, watching other parents. That, yeah. really, that was really big. Seeing the challenges, seeing the blessings. Yeah. So that we weren't, you know, thrown off. You know, like, we real. Like, me and Leslie are real. We, we like We ask those hard questions. Yeah. Yes. No, everything you're saying is so beautiful and so thoughtful and so deliberate. 
all I could think to myself is if you want to adopt a 46-year-old uh, <laughs> from New York, uh, <laughs> it just sounds like you're creating a beautiful nest, a really beautiful nest. We, we, hope, we hope so. We yeah. really your energy, like even the first time I met you, you just had this really beautiful, spiritual, calm energy, and um, it's well, probably her because she was glowing. I, <laughs> I had just gained twenty pounds. From <laughs> okay, so how did you find out you were pregnant? Um, I knew. I already knew. Kai felt it. I was. I didn't know, and I didn't want to waste another pregnancy test. So I was like waiting. You know, I was like, oh, we don't need to use. I'll just wait. And then Carvins was speaking to his mom on FaceTime. Even, like, well, even before that, for three weeks, I was looking at her like, take this pregnancy test because I know you're pregnant. And I was like, no, pregnancy test. And then you were talking to your mom on FaceTime. And then she was like, let me see Leslie. She looked at me and she was like, you're pregnant. Oh, and wow. And then after that phone call, I got a test. I oh, know I took the test. We had the test. I took the test. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh. I'm so excited. And like, so you were the last to know. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> video game. She was screaming in the back. Yeah, he was being really calm. <laughs> and I was in the bathroom like, okay. Oh, my God. Like, I was very, like, don't know, but very excited. I do think. And then she got real anal. She was like, we have to go to Whole Foods right now and get prenatal vitamins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, spinal bitter. Yeah, I very, <laughs> yeah, I was very on it. Like, it was like excitement, film our, you know, memories. We took some photos. And I was like, we have to go get my prenatal pills right now. <laughs> yeah. Had only you taken that test three weeks earlier. It was also nine o'clock at yeah. night on a Sunday. Yeah. Oh, Instacart. <laughs> so how was the first trimester for you? It was rough. I, you got the stuff? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of morning sickness. Yeah, it was really challenging. Um, Grateful Car was there like every day to help, you know, pick up my head off the toilet and shower, like all that. He was super helpful. And I'm, I'm so grateful that like when I was able to talk to my midwife, Bliss, and she was like, okay, this is a plan. Like, let's get some more protein. So then Every two hours, I was eating protein, and that huh. really helped. And then I had a change from – I couldn't swallow my pills, so I switched all my vitamins into smoothies, and that really helped. But it was it was really hard, and sleeping a lot, like taking so many naps. I felt like drugs. Like I couldn't even keep my eyes open. I was very, very tired. And that lasted all the way a little bit into my second trimester, like two or three weeks into my second trimester. Oh, wow. When you say morning sickness, it sounds like it wasn't really just morning. It was more like all day sickness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it definitely started in the morning. It was like, if I didn't eat within five to 10 minutes of waking up, I was throwing up. Yeah. Mm. So then I started keeping, you know, kind bars by my bed, making PB&Js, like waking up, like breakfast, you know, like soon as possible, which was very new for me. Have you seen on Shark Tank, the bacon alarm clock? No. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it was uh, this product that you put bacon strips in there, whatever time you want to wake up. It starts warming them up just a few minutes before that, so you wake up to the smell of bacon. That's oh, funny. That sounds that's good. Funny. I'm about to Google Which that. is so crazy. <laughs> like that, that's one of the things I like, love to eat during pregnancy yeah. <laughs> that I didn't eat before. Before pregnancy, she didn't eat any red meat. Not like that. No, that dairy. Very rare, very rare. Oh, really? For health? As soon as she got pregnant, she was like, I want me a grilled cheese sandwich. Yeah, I ate mozzarella steaks. sticks. Yeah. Like, so crazy. All the cravings. Burgers and steak and cheese. Wow. I might be pregnant. <laughs> Those are all my things. 
you mentioned a couple of times your midwife. So I take it you're birthing with a midwife. I know your midwife, so I know you're birthing at home. Was that a plan, like even pre-pregnancy, or did like, how did you come to? Because not that many people. I think we're up to like two percent give birth with a midwife out of a hospital. Wow, I really? Two yeah, yeah. Well, you're one of the uh, weird. Every time I tell them we're going, have, uh, <laughs> yeah, they always think there's some kind of witchcraft involved. Yeah, it's. Uh, well, I thought there was witchcraft too. <laughs> okay, witchcraft going. Is on. that why you picked it? <laughs> No, um, well, one, I would say, I think I first heard of my midwife from your podcast, so, oh. you know, kudos to you. Oh, it's <laughs> not it's not just my mom and Auntie Jane anymore. <laughs> but, um, no, uh, when I was in college, my last year, I took a women's studies class about uh, women's health biology, and it changed my life. I wrote this whole paper um, in research about why home birth was safer than the hospital, did a lot of research. Wow, in college? Yeah, my last year it was just like that's intense. Mind you, in college, my freshman year college roommate was the first person I ever met who was born at home. I never heard of a home birth before that. Mm. And so, yeah, my my last year um, had this really great professor. She had all these great resources. We learned about Twilight Sleep and Ina May and and Granny Midwives and just the hospitalization of birth. And I remember watching Business of Being Born and all these different documentaries and. Um, it just really changed my life, honestly. It impacted me in such a way that I knew that I wanted to have a home birth in the future. Did you guys talk about that? The partners are not always, like, super on board. They're <laughs> nervous. Well, yeah, no. She told me when we dated. Like, even before we were, like, boyfriend and girlfriend, she was like, and just so you know, if I ever have a baby, I'm having it at home. And I was like... <laughs> All right, cool. Like, whatever. And then, uh, you know, we spoke about it while, you know, we were, you know, married and we spoke about it when we dated. So, I, I mean, I was always open to it, but I was like, who, what is this weird hippie, like, witchcraft? <laughs> like, I'm not. And, and my mom is a nurse. A lot of my Your family sister. members, my sister's a nurse. So I sort of grew up with the hospital being a part of the culture of like, Growing up, like I went to the hospital all the time to visit my mom at work. I, you know, my aunts are nurses, so I, I didn't, I don't have the same relationship, yeah, to like hospitals than than she does. Not to say that I haven't experienced some really messed up things at yeah. doctors, but yeah, overall, I mean, I was open, and then as soon as we found out we were pregnant, you know, I'm all about research and I'm all about being informed. So I'm like, word, like. I'm Let's trying to be woke. It. Like, give me all the information. And we watched the business of being born. She had already watched it. So she was just sitting there with some popcorn looking at me like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I watched it. It blew me away. I said, yeah. it made me ask the question, if, if we have this information about the mortality rates of women at the hospitals, especially black women, if we have the research, especially in New York, of the C-section. rate of C-sections being over, what, 70 or 80 percent, if we near have... lunch and dinner. Yeah, near lunch and dinner. If we have this information about the type of um, intervention yeah. in environment, be it uh, high levels of Pitocin, all this stuff, why are we doing this at the hospital again? Like, it was really kind of, like, logical for me. And I think a woman should feel empowered to birth anywhere she would like, you know? Um, And I think most people feel comfortable at the hospital, but a lot of people I know feel comfortable at the hospital don't have all the information. So I I think it's important to have all the information and then make that choice. And I was going to say, just to add to that, I think 
yes, after that class, but also I haven't had like the greatest experiences at hospitals or interaction with doctors. You know, I have experienced a lot of like disrespect and racial profiling and like when, you know, feeling empowered after taking these a couple of women's studies classes about women's health and coming to my doctor to try to have like a conversation and they're just like surprised and like shutting down a conversation more like I'm going to tell you what to take and what to do or like if I ask like do I have to take that medicine you know what are the other options it was always it wasn't an open conversation it wasn't a, a space where I felt like I was really getting helped and that it was a safe environment for me personally and so another reason to have a home birth is because I just felt safer at home and I really valued a relationship especially because I traveled a lot. So I've always seen different doctors, if that makes sense, when I needed to. Yeah, so you don't get the long-term relationship. Yes, I think I really valued like, oh, if I have a midwife and a doula, there's going to be like this relationship built over time around our pregnancy. Yeah, and your midwife in particular, I love her so much. Uh, I've told her this. We love Bliss. Bliss, yeah. And she's been on the podcast before. I told her recently that I've been trying to get pregnant so she could be my midwife. Uh, <laughs> it hasn't, we haven't succeeded, but I'm going to keep trying. Oh, you know what? It's freaking time to take another break. I love talking to you guys. We're going to be right back after this quick break. <laughs> Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Leslie and Carvins, and uh, you guys are due any moment. And in addition to being pregnant during a pandemic, you touched on a couple of things already, just in terms of your healthcare experiences and being profiled racially. We know that during pregnancy and postpartum, there's this huge disparity between outcomes between uh, black and white moms and black and white babies. And it's now in this time, just during your pregnancy, um, and I know you're from Minnesota, Leslie, so I don't think anybody watched the George Floyd video of him being murdered and wasn't touched by it, wasn't moved by it. And of course, the whole nation and really the whole world has risen up and tried to figure out what do we do and how do we do it and how do we make significant, meaningful changes in healthcare and in general for racial equality. So, you know, I wonder what it's like for you guys being black in America at this time in general, but also during this particular time, coupled especially with your pregnancy. Yeah, uh, I think, I mean, it's a mix of emotions, right? With pregnancy, there's this joy and excitement of this blessing and this baby being born. And then there's just like, the duality and juxtaposition of all what's going on in the world and this attack on the black body of this erasure of, of men and women that happen to be black. And I think it's been difficult, you know, it's, it's been hard to see the news, to, to see another hashtag, to be on social media where it's just like another video, another image. I think a part of my resistance has been joy, trying to find joy in my pregnancy through poetry through spending time with my son. Um, I think the work behind the scenes, you know, like I'm from Minneapolis, like that's where my family's from. They've all been to the memorial. Like they, they marched on the freeway where the semi tried to run over protesters, you know? It, it's really real. Like it's, it's before you see it on Facebook, I'm on the phone with someone who's on the freeway running for their life. Wow. So I think 
that in particular hit home. I think it's been a struggle. Like I've, you know, dealt with nightmares and not being able to sleep very well. I think that uh, it's been like, for example, um, Carvin's has a book target practice and with his book. And I have a planner that I created the greater than planner. If anybody wanted to buy all the donations went to Brianna Taylor and a uh, foundation in Minnesota to help. So I think, we personally didn't make the choice to be outside and protest physically here in LA for safety reasons with COVID and me being pregnant. But I think we've always been about social justice work in our lives, whether it was with our art, with Carvin's poetry book, uh, Target Practice and his EP. I think there's always been this conversation. It's not a the pandemic and COVID happened and now we're talking about it. This is something that's always been in our lives. Yeah, I think... Uh... I like to frame this time with sort of these two words that have been this sort of crippling duality that this has been the craziest time in my life where I felt the most gratitude and the most despair. That the implications of me waiting for my black son's arrival lights my heart on fire and also makes me fear in a way that I didn't know my bones could fear. Existing in, as a black man and in this black body and knowing the pangs of the world and you know, being deemed a threat, being deemed inherently criminal. You know, even for someone like me who would quote unquote operate with some type of social status, being the biggest Broadway show in the world, having three degrees, being a part of all these different institutions, you would think that I would be one of the good ones who wouldn't fall victim to this type of prejudice or this type of violence, and I haven't. I've been stopped by the cops. I've been profiled so many times. I have experienced the violence against me in so many different ways that it made me realize like, oh, it doesn't even matter how I operate in this world. I will be deemed a criminal. I will be deemed a threat. And yeah, it's a scary reality, especially when you bring in a kid into this world. So again, it's been this sort of mixture of immense gratitude and utter despair and grief. Yeah. And I, I was just going to add to that. Um, been thinking a lot about, like, there's a lot of statistics, like Black women are likely to die three to four times. You know, like that's been repeated. People have sent me articles about that. And I think like what's missing in that conversation is how are we keeping them alive? What are we providing for them? How are we providing resources? Healthcare. Yeah. Like, you know, and there's like this argument like, well, they had pre-diagnosed or all these different things. And I'm like, it it starts so much at the beginning. And I think Lathan Thomas said it in an interview. She said the way that we spend energy on black death, mourning, protesting. What if we use that energy on black life? What if we use those resources to celebrate a child who's coming into the world? What if we built up a family? What if we, you know, gave that neighbor those groceries, you know, when they're pregnant and tired? And it just really challenged, you know, how we can funnel that energy. And I'm not trying to take away anything from someone's morning, but it was a great question about like, how are we celebrating life? Because I do think it's that thing like, you know, give the person the flowers before they die, that that quote. Um, I've really been thinking about that. Like, how can we celebrate life? It's all very powerful, and I'm just I'm listening a lot because I'm learning a lot. And I've been on occasion a victim of anti-Semitism, 
not often, thankfully, um, but in, in several different places in New York and Los Angeles and other places. And it's once in a blue moon. And I did an episode on the racial disparity in childbirth with a black midwife, Debbie Allen, who's super brilliant and always teaches me so much. And in general, I found the more I shut up and listen, the more I actually just learn. But I have such a, an inquisitive mind that in retrospect, I think I asked too many questions last time. So I'm just here listening. But you know, one of the things that she pointed out is I could potentially hide my Jewish and you can't really hide your black. So not that you should have to, or I should have to, but it's just like, you're always, you know, the first thing someone sees when they look at you is you can't hide that you're black. And so she made it so clear and I had never thought about it that just every place she goes, if she's going to buy a car, if she's going to look at real estate, anything that she does, like it's just looked at through a different lens. And um, until that conversation, which was about two years ago, I, I never really even imagined that. So on a bigger scale, when it's not just buying a car, buying a house, like when it's getting pulled over by the police and uh, other even things. driving by the police. Like, you know, we were on our way to Palm Springs for our baby moon. And I just drove by the police and was like riddled with fear. I just drove. I just drove. I was like, wait, was I speeding? Am I going to get stopped? With his? It's also the, the fear of the unknown or even, or even the, because uh, that's what trauma is, right? You know, some, I had an acting teacher say that trauma is the inability for activity, right? Something, something there is, is broken and it doesn't allow you to sort of live and exist as fully and as whole as you would like. And uh, yeah, there are moments where, you know, it doesn't seem that I'm in sort of any imminent danger, but, <laughs> but you know, these you things play it. in your mind. Yeah. These, these YouTube videos play Scenario. in your mind. These yeah. Instagram viral videos play in your mind. And it's hard to sort of erase yourself from that. But, yeah. And when I think about it in the context of even sort of this birthing world, something that I as a, I'm also like a six, three, you know, tall, you know, full figured chocolate dude. <laughs> what I realized about, you know, being this sort of man that takes up space is I'm always sort of considered uh, strong and that my threshold for pain supersedes a lot of other people. And that happens to black women all the time. And, and you know, in hospitals, you know, when they try to advocate for themselves, they're like, no, you're okay. You can take the pain. Yeah. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, you have a, a black woman trying to advocate and say, hey, I'm feeling this, you know, hey, I'm feeling that. Hey, I'm in pain. And a lot of doctors won't listen. Yeah. So we have to investigate the intricacies and the psychology behind these prejudice. Yeah, sure. Violence and and racial profiling. A lot of it isn't malicious, right? A lot of it is actually small, but it's those small things, those those microaggressions, if you will, that actually uh, lead to very big macro problems. I I have this unpopular opinion that within healthcare, it's possible that there's many people in healthcare, doctors, nurses, and other healthcare practitioners that don't even realize that they're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. um, Yeah. Totally. You know, if I'm right about that, then a little bit of bias training, if we could somehow even point out that you're doing this unconsciously, I think they themselves would be mortified and, you know, bend over backwards to make sure that it doesn't happen again. But I also do think I myself, I had a bad case of COVID and um, I'm still, even though physically I'm feeling pretty great, talk about trauma, I'm a little bit 
traumatized by the whole thing and I haven't really moved into any new projects and also with COVID, but it's a project that I really want to get involved with, which is I feel like anybody who goes into healthcare in America needs to have not just a workshop, but like heavy bias training. We all have different biases. We all do. And we may not be aware of them, but in a good bias training program, we should be able to kind of look deep inside ourselves and try to figure out what are our biases, where they come from, how do they affect my decision-making, how do they affect my approach to giving care to uh, people from different backgrounds. And you shouldn't really be able to, to get a license, I don't think, in any kind of healthcare profession until you've done that. You may not... institution that's in the people business need to have extensive workshops on sexual harassment, on anti-racism, especially if it's in America, right? Where it is woven in the fabric of uh, what the country was sort of built on. It's systematic, it's it's large. And yeah, I I definitely agree with you because we need to understand the implications of what what we do, all of us. And I was gonna say, I think like the work is those hard conversations, right? I think what you said about like, okay, in this hospital, we're going to have bias training. Well, if people aren't honest, you know, they don't feel safe there. They're afraid they're going to lose their job. Like I, I think the real work is those tough conversations at the lunch table where you're having those uncomfortable conversations where you might lose a coworker or lose a friend because you guys have different biases and different opinions. But I think that's where the work is, right? Like you don't let that friend go just because they believe differently than you. Like you work through, you have those tough conversations to empathize, to see their side. And I think that's the work that's missing. People want a diversity inclusion packet about how to be anti-racist and what to do and what to say. But it really starts with their heart. It's like much that, deeper than that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like more than a workbook. Legislation can't change hate. That is true. And it just, it pains me. It pains me. Say that again. I said you need both. You need both legislation and a heart change. Absolutely. It it just pains me that we're in this place and hopefully it's, it's a transition to a much better place. It just pains me that we're in this place where we just are so focused on our differences and our differences truly, I think, are small compared to what we have in common with each other, what we're all looking for in this world, and what we want to experience ourselves and provide for our children. And I think that's where we have so much in common. And to find a way to sort of make things equal for everybody. And so everybody feels the same when they go to a hospital and everybody feels the same when they drive by a police officer, you know, safe, you feel extra safe. if and you buy. And I think, I'm so, so sorry to cut you off. No I problem. Think, I think the sameness in our humanity, right? Yes. The sameness is in our humanity, but I think we should actually, it, it's not a bad thing to focus on our differences. We can celebrate our differences. I'm happy to celebrate our differences. As long as we also celebrate what we have in common and bond over what we have in common. And, you know, I think that way with gender, I think that way in general, that we're just not the same. We're equal, but not the same. And so we can bond over what we have in common and celebrate our differences. And what a little utopian world I'm, I'm painting here, but hopefully we're on our way there. And that's sort of, I want to get in, actually, we're going to go a little long, if you don't mind, because you mentioned something, two things that I want to get into also, but... I kind of hope, first of all, Leslie, what you said, I thought that was beautiful, like celebrating life too, and really bringing happiness and joy and making a big deal out of life as well. But I hope that the 
despair and the gratitude are, you know, during this time, I, I'm asking, actually, it's a question. During this time, does the momentum on the ground at this time give you more hope or make you more fearful? That's a great question. For me personally, it's, it's hard to have faith in this country. It just is. The type of sort of radical systematic and both sort of personal heart change that I would need to see for me to listen at the end of the day, racism, systematic oppression is, is for me, it's on a spiritual level. It's sin, right? Hatred is sin. Mm -hmm. And until we deal with that radical level of, uh, of spiritual infraction to look at another person and say, I know you're made in the image of God, but I hate you. We can never, grow. So a part of me, I feel empowered that people are brave to speak out and to stand up. But for me to feel hopeful, that's something that I'm working on. Because even as a person of faith, hope is difficult for me. So I sort of take it one day at a time. You know, I have maybe moments of hope. Uh, I have maybe have moments of like, man, I think some things can change. But most of the time I'm like, well, yeah, this is just a rerun. You know, I have a line in uh, a poem of mine that I say, you know, the black body is a rerun, a never ending cycle of birth and departure, birth and departure, magic that no one enjoys. The black body is a treadmill running for dear life, but still ending up in the same place. Oh, wow. Scratch your record, looping the agony of its history. And that's how I feel. I feel we're not seeing anything new, right? We just happen to see it on Instagram. We're not experiencing anything that this country didn't experience 400 years ago. It's a cycle. So in order to break a cycle, something supernatural has to happen. That, that, that's just me. I'm more of the hopeful one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's why we're <laughs> That's why she married. She's I'm doing like, yeah, I'm, I'm like, I'm very hopeful. And like, uh, this pregnancy has brought me so much joy. And I feel so grateful for like my health and just like, just the baby growing and like, I'm just, I'm really excited to meet him and show him the world and travel. So I'm, I'm very hopeful. <laughs> but you're hopeful for the baby, not for the country, Well, I'm saying, you? I'm saying. I know you're not, because you'd be up in here walking around. Walking it's a up mix, and down okay. It's a <laughs> mix. Walking up and down this but house I'm, like, ah, ah, this is crazy. But you never go change. But I'm saying the baby has continued to give me hope and joy. And the world itself, I would say it's been a back and forth, right? There are beautiful interactions that I have with people that continue to remind me of people's humanity and love. Like we've been blessed in so many different ways with community and stuff like that. But then I do think it's juxtaposed with like pain and another hashtag. So I, I think it's a constant mix of emotions, to be honest. That makes sense. And it's kind of, uh, you know, we've had momentum before and Sometimes it creates change, positive change, and sometimes it doesn't. So day by day, I think, is right. It's the only way to go yeah. to see where we end up. The two things that you mentioned that I wanted to talk about real quick are um, target practice. You glossed over that. Uh, Carvins has a book and an EP. Tell me more about that. Uh, yeah, so target practice is something I started writing in my last year of graduate school at NYU. Uh, in the grad acting program, I was working on a play that I wanted to write 
at the time I was working on this other play called Buried Child. I played the character named Father Dewis. So AKA, I was not really in the play. So I had a lot of time backstage. <laughs> I ended up seeing a video live of Philando Castile, who's from St. Paul, Minnesota, and watched him get murdered in front of his girlfriend, in front of his girlfriend's daughter. Uh, yeah, and in that moment, I felt charged to write. Uh, the book ended up being, instead of it being a play, it ended up being a collection of poetry. I also felt sort of moved to create music around it. So He's I created, a great singer. Uh, I'm okay. Uh, I made a five-track EP that, yeah, and th listen, this piece investigates violence against Black bodies in light of police brutality. My experiences as a Haitian-American, you know, growing up in this country with my narrative of Blackness coming from the Caribbean, and just sort of my day-to-day -day experiences as a Broadway actor, walking into my apartment building, walking on the streets of New York of small of microaggressions that I experienced and how I sort of wrestle and operate in the world. Yeah, and operate in the world. So yeah, the, the book, I worked on it for the better half of like about two years and it, it took a lot out of me, it took a lot out of me. And I released it last year and, you know, book is still on sale. EP is still, you know, open for streaming. And that where, is, can, uh, where can we find them? Uh, the book is on small press and distributions. All the links um, are on his website. Yeah, all the links are on my website, www.carbonflassant.com. <laughs> you can Google the book, Target Practice, and, and it should come up. But yeah, I think it's a piece of work that I feel is important. And I'm writing a play right now that isn't solely based off the book, but loosely inspired by just my experiences. Sounds great. I will check them out. And also, uh, Carvin's Lassant sounds like one of those names you don't have to do like Carvin's six, two, six, three at com, Like, cause the, the, it was already taken. And then Leslie, you mentioned an or organizer. Yes. I created a planner last year. It, I laugh about it because you know, it's like the year I launched my planner, the year the plans were canceled. <laughs> but, the an the anti-planner. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it was, you know, a passion project, something I always wanted to do. I'm definitely like both creative and also a type, like love Excel spreads and timetables and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I created a planner called the greater than planner. God's plans are greater than ours. And that was 2020. And I will be launching small, 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 you know, pre-orders for 2021. Where do we get those? On my website, just com. All right. I got two websites to check out. Um, before we close, how many weeks are you guys now? 38. Wow. You have I so know. much energy. <laughs> yeah, she does. No she kidding. I'm like, so girl, go to sleep. You're go so sleep. <laughs> and we're looking at your birth center right now behind you. <laughs> <laughs> You're so planning your birth at home with a midwife. And you said, is there also a doula? Yeah, yeah Karen Fields is our doula. She's amazing. She's really great. Yeah. Sounds like an amazing team you have there. And then Hayes is uh, yes, probably going to be with you too. Yeah. Oh, what an incredible team. I'm excited for you guys. I would ask you, if you're up to it, come on back after you have the baby and tell us how it went. Of course. Yeah, of we'll, course. We'll, we'll plop them right here. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Perfect. Until then, thank you so much for being here and having these uh, really wonderful conversations. I appreciate you both. And uh, I'm sending you lots of positive birth vibes for an amazing experience. I look forward to talking to you when you come back. 
Thank and you. I'm right after we close this out, I'm going to check out both of your websites. At home, thanks for listening to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. If you like our program, share us with your friends and leave us some feedback in your podcast app. I read them all. And for more pregnancy and parenting-related media, visit us at informedpregnancy.com. I got a whole lot of questions for you.